Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Now that the sun is shining and in between trips to the seaside and our fresco cocktails, how should you be spending your summer culturally? Well, we've got some ideas and on today's programme we'll be taking a look at which exhibitions are worth a visit in the coming months. First, we'll review German artist Anselm Kiefer's new show at White Cube Bermondsey with Francesca Gavin, who also comes bearing a hot tip for where else you should head to if you're looking for a hit of great art. Then we meet the curators behind an exhibition at London Cortled Institute of Art that might not be all that it seems. Now, the highly celebrated artist Anselm Kiefer's new exhibition, Finnegan's Wake, combines painting, installation and sculpture to respond to the 1939 James Joyce novel of the same name. The show is an exciting, overwhelming and dark jumble of works, shopping trolleys sticking out of heaps of sand, while broken filing cabinets tap precariously on top of glass vitrines. Walking down one corridor feels like unearthing an abandoned museum of rusty bicycles, folding chairs, rocks and rubble. And everywhere you look, Joyce in quotes are scribbled across the displays. But what did critic, curator and friend of Monocle on Culture, Francesca Gavin, make of it? Fran, welcome to the programme. Hi, I'm friendly. <laughs> <laughs> friend of the show. Friendly Fran. We need, we need all the friends we can get with Anselm Kiefer's new show. I found it monumental and awesome in the right way. I mean, I that's suppose. the perfect word. To, I always think about when you think of Kiefer mm. and the mm. fact that he's even taking on Joyce comes with a monumental level of ego as well, but <laughs> in a kind of amazing way. I mean, it really is a monumental show. Mm. And apart from the fact there's some site-specific installations in here that are huge, but Kiefer is an artist who can do giant, concrete, building-sized sculptural work. He's not afraid of making it big. No, it's a huge thing that feels like, I mean, we talked about Mike Nelson's similarly perhaps post-apocalyptic show at the Hayward Gallery a couple of months back, didn't we, on this programme. Mm. And it feels like it shares DNA with that, but also it could have shared that huge public space, the Hayward Gallery. The White Cubes Bermondsey site is huge and they use every square inch of it. They use the full ceiling height. They do let some light in from the ceiling lights, but other than that is a dark, intense show that uses every inch of that site. I mean, I actually think that's kind of great. Mm. I think that's quite impressive. I mean, normally when you go into the White Cube Bermondsey, it's a bit like stepping into a Bond movie. It's like ultra slick, very long corridor, very clean, ultimate white cube. You come in through these hanging shifts of photographic collage that have been kind of cut off and then you're in a giant long corridor with, let's say, four or five rooms coming off of it. A lot of the main installation is taken from his own studio. Well, particularly one of his studios. I think Keith has a few. <laughs> um, this is the he's one. Not, he's not. He's not tinkering in his bedroom. No, he's not struggling. No. So this is the one from outside of Paris, and so you definitely feel like you're entering into another world, and it's kind of very expansive and incredibly crammed. But in the introduction, you say that it almost feels a bit like you're in a strange museum because he's very much playing with museumology and these kind of vitrines and that kind of organisation. But it's far odder than that because yeah. really it's just, it's a museum of kind of failure, maybe, yeah. or a museum of the unfinished thing or like crumbling ruins. 
There are rooms that feel like they share something with Ozymandias. There are things that riff on perhaps John Martin's sort of apocalyptic sort of volcanoes and chasms opening up in the earth. That last, I'm going to call it the last room, it depends what order you do it in, but I think it sort of feels like a final statement. It feels like a building has been bombed or has been destroyed over years and years. So there's reinforcing mesh, there's concrete. And there are these paintings sort of set around. One seems almost like a religious, sort of almost like a triptych, where it's three, three figures. But there are the ones that feel like they're sort of post-apocalyptic takes on Monet's water lilies, mm. these huge Giveni paintings. How much of art history is he riffing on, I wonder, and how much of his own work and his own predilection or fear of, but riffing on war and the horror of the 20th century? Is yeah, I mean, obviously he was born in 1945 in Germany, yeah. so a lot of his work very clearly is, like many of his generation, responding to that post-war German landscape. And Keith is very much about landscapes. There's some really interesting shifts in this. In some of the paintings, you'll see much more like doll's clothes and embedded fabric and things that almost look more like basically a wave of refugees mm. with the landscapes in general. There's often this feeling almost of like post-World War I poetry where you're looking at basically like the former site of battle somehow. Mm. That final installation, which is very strong, which is basically barbed wire around like a concrete structure that's fallen apart, very much feels like the ruins of the 20th century. But around it, the quotes on the wall that he's chosen from Joyce are very much about redemption and rising up somehow. There's some kind of sense of positivity or, it's interesting you say religion, but there's something upward underneath something that could be very gloomy. <laughs> there are pieces of text that sort of say God gave us original sin and then there are more hopeful pieces of religious prose in it or prose that's riffing on the religious, which is obviously very Joycean as well. I mean, I've read that his work has previously looked at particularly Finnegan's Wake. It's a book that's kind of stayed with him because I guess it's got this kind of addictively fragmentive, impossible to understand, sort of you have to stand back and look at the whole text in order to make a sense of a small portion of it, perhaps. And this feels very much like perhaps looking at the degradation of the 20th century and being German-born in 1945, particular take on it. Yeah, but also at the same time, I think that there's something autobiographical going mm. on here, particularly in the main sort of corridor where there's a lot of like maquettes or smaller versions of other works he's made. There's a lot of things taking the motifs he's done throughout his career, piles of books, concrete, plaster, dipped plants and like leaves. There's a lot of very Kiefer-esque motifs moving through it. So I think it's an artist also towards the end of his life. He's almost 80 coming back and actually rethinking and looking at his own achievements within that. I mean, there's definitely the comparison with Joyce. Also, throughout, language is huge throughout yeah. his paintings. And when I say paintings, I mean that in the most expanded way because they're very much reliefs. They've always had either huge impasto or objects embedded into them. Once I saw a painting of his that had a boat shoved on it. I mean, he looked like he, there's loads. I mean, one of my favorite paintings in this one, there was loads of almost it looked like rock slate and you realize it's like, Painters' palettes with li- their palettes, yeah, yeah. their palettes with like little snakes on them, and that was kind of amazing. You think, you think they're just the daubs of paint for the artists to use, but then as you walk around, they're revealed as snakes. Yeah, I mean, so the, definitely the, referring to art history, definitely yeah. referring to. I mean, one of my favourite things in the corridor, up really high at the very end on the right, there is a box that says failure, and I was like, yeah. Mm, yeah. which kind of had like leftover bits, and I yeah. think that's also. An artist who's striving for monumentality, aiming big and also struggling with it. Perhaps actually a really interesting comparison to Joyce in that way. Mm. 
But obviously, yeah, there's lots of language. Keith always does the text hand-scrawled in this kind of beautiful italics. That's often been in his work in the past. But there's loads of multilingual elements scattered around. Yes, there's lots of sort of references to 30 million yara throughout it. And yeah. I mean, I haven't read Finnegan's Wake, please forgive me. I haven't read Ulysses. Loved, you know, love Dubliners. This will be uh, Francesca Gavin's last appearance on this programme. If you can't read Finnegan's Wake to prepare for this podcast. I was always more of a Beckett girl, but I think Beckett and Joyce had some issues. But anyways. I mean, there are parts of it. We've described it as a heavy show, but there are moments where Joyce's impish use of language kind of comes out and you realise that this is Kiefer's funny bone being tickled in some small portion in the show. There is a little bit of light amongst the shades, isn't there? Yeah, and there's also some beauty. Beauty through the kind of ruin, if that makes sense. Like sunflowers growing through dust, that kind of idea. (laughs) And there's the room, which it seems to be burnished. The room on the right-hand side as you walk down, it's a large room, something that belongs in the kind of Church of the Holy Sepulchre with all these kind of maybe texts laying upon it, which almost look like plasterboard that's all curled up. And then around it are these paintings of ambiguous abstraction. You walk around what might be the final one on the furthest right and it talks about women and that's the only women's role in history and that's the only one that looks a bit more like a classical landscape painting. Mm. It looks a bit more hay-wainy than than all the other ones which yeah. look so bastardised. Well, right? It's got a lot of this. He, in that room there's a lot of kind of verdigris. It's like he's used yes. water in the process and that's kind of rusted and created this kind of oxidisation on the canvases. And remember, these are not small canvases. These are enormous paintings. I mean, he's very much intertwined with the scale and thinking around history painting. Poussin onwards, 19th century idea of depicting, you know, the bigness of life, I suppose. <laughs> he's, you know, I, like he's, you, I like you can veer between verdigree one sentence and bigness the next, friend. <laughs> so articulate. <laughs> and how, how ambiguous. I mean, how obviously he, the, the show is called Finnegan's Wake. It's not called anything uh, more kind of foreign and, and away from the um, away from the plot or otherwise of that book than that how ambiguous is the show do we think i mean how how obvious are his references and how ambiguous is the is the show as a whole well i'll put it this way you can enjoy it without having read the book yeah. you, you know it's got elements of narrative and storytelling embedded in its kind of installation structure it's an incredible use of space it was actually quite busy for a a morning, which I was quite surprised about. Normally galleries aren't. There were people really, like, engaging with the work for a reason. Yeah. You know, there's... You can come and create your own narratives within that. And then it probably will make some people want to read Finnegan's Way. <laughs> you know, it might... You know, anything... I, which I, arguably is also part of the artist's, you know, when you're in love with a text, like, bringing people to the reason why you're in love with something is also there. But I yeah. think, I think the show... It's obviously the text is obviously a huge starting point here, but for me it really is a kind of artist looking at his own career and and his own lifetime and all the shifts that have happened within that and how you can project that onto the objects that you're making, how you can relate to those kind of, yeah, the bigness of life, to quote my... (laughs) Myself. Um, I like that. The bigness of life in all its forms. Um, it's part of Finnegan's Wake, Anselm Kiefer's show at White Cube Bermondsey here in London. That's on until the 20th of August. Um, and we definitely both recommend a trip down to down to SE1. Now, 
you've come with one more recommendation mm. on the up your sleeve. Yes. Where I, else are we going, Fran? Okay, well, I, so now we had a German in London. Let's have a French person in Berlin, mm. which is an institutional show of Hervé Guibert, um, who's dead. He died in 1988, I believe, from AIDS. He was an incredibly gorgeous, I might add, gay French photographer and incredibly prolific author who was also the photographic um, correspondent for Le Monde. He's very well known for outing Michel Foucault, who mm-hmm. was one of his lovers, but also writing these incredible... Now I know what Foucault's pendulum was. Oh. That's a bit gross, isn't it? <laughs> Stopping that. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> but it was obviously a huge deal in France. But, he, I, you know, Guibert wrote these incredible novels that were very much about the experience of AIDS. It really changed people's perception of it within France. But increasingly, his own photographic work is getting some great attention within the art world. He's done shows in Vienna with a great gallery called Felix Gaudlitz. And this is an institutional one. And the photography work is intimate. It's very much an artist who's responding to black and white, the kind of tropes of serious photography mm-hmm. at the time he was writing. It's very Peter Houchard. If you're into there's lots of, you know, intimate naked men in yeah. hotel rooms around the world and going to the catacombs in Palermo, etc. And then the occasional famous person like Gina Lollabrigida or something in there. Um, but I think this not, will be... Who's not not a gay icon. No, exactly. <laughs> and also, I mean, you know, Guibert looked like a little Raphael. He died at 36. He was very young. Right. It's uh, His work is really... When you see it, it's actually a bit like, wow, how did I not know this person? And, and at a moment where... It's always a delight when you have a good rediscovery of an artist that perhaps didn't have the international attention they deserved or has been forgotten in time. And in the same way that his novels have been really rediscovered mm. by a new generation with like big articles in The New Yorker, etc. So I think this is like a kind of a subtle, intimate, quiet alternative to the bombast of Kiefer. Right. But it's also got a lot of greyness and black and white. So actually interesting kind of... <laughs> You know, quite aesthetically matched, but yeah, it's just they're they're quite small images, and they're just really, really incredibly good. Yeah. So, what format was he shooting in? Are they, are they kind of uniformly of the same format? Are your eyes at the same level throughout this? From show? what I've seen yeah. in the past, yeah. yeah. I mean, and there's some. If, if you're, you know, usually KW are quite good for their archival shows of having a few nice and tasty books, which sell out very quickly from the bookshop, which I recommend going and look at. Because obviously this was a period in time where photography was also seen more not within a gallery context, perhaps. Yeah. But it's um, the work is very subtle. It's very intimate. It's quite quiet. There's some amazing pictures of people looking at art and you're taking... And how they took a picture over the shoulder of a young man looking at a painting that was incredible. Yeah. Um, it's just a re- really, really sensitive work that I think also has very much to do with the relationship of homosexuality at that time and this kind of keeping things quiet and hidden, and then the devastation of AIDS throughout the 80s and the impact that it had on him as an individual, but also the, an entire generation of people. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite touching work. And Franz choice there, Hervé Guibert, is on at KW Berlin until the 20th of August, as is Finnegan's Wake at White Cube Bermondsey.
And now to the world of arts trying imitators. This summer, London's Courtauld Institute of Art is hosting an exhibition in its gallery that showcases the ever-fascinating world of art forgery. Ahead of the opening of Art and Artifice, Fakes from the Collection, Paige Reynolds delved into the archives and got a behind-the-scenes look at some of the works on display. They say life imitates art, but as the long history of art forgery proves, art also imitates art. So once the experts sniff out a fake, what value do these works have? Two curators keen to highlight the historical and educational value of that questionable Goya or all but convincing Van Gogh are Karen Serra and Rachel Happenu. Together, they have curated a brand new exhibition at the Courtauld Institute of Art, using works from its own collection to probe deeper into the histories and mysteries of forgers and fakes. We started things off in the painting store. As the hum of the environmental cooler word, curator of paintings Karen Serra carefully unveils what looks like an early Renaissance Madonna. I thought maybe we would start with the poster image, which is this wonderful work that was long thought to be really one of Botticelli's best works. And when it was discovered by a dealer and then brought to the art market in 1930, it was really considered to be a wonderful, wonderful new discovery. A few people, a few scholars said it was a little bit too good to be true because it has all the hallmarks of Botticelli. If you made a checklist of everything you wanted from your Botticelli, this one has it. The incredibly beautiful uh, Virgin Mary staring out at us, all of the wonderful kind of diaphanous textiles of her veil, and indeed it's called the Madonna of the, of the veil, and then a little playful child in her lap, and then a wonderful kind of Florentine landscape in the background, and a little bit of architecture framing the whole scene. So it really, it just ticks all the boxes. So, of course, collectors were absolutely fascinated by it and didn't really ask a lot of um, a lot of questions. But we now know that, of course, it's a fake that was made only a few years earlier by someone in Siena, who was a very talented artist who was trained in very traditional methods. And so he was not only able to replicate the style of Botticelli very, very beautifully, but also, and that's, this is maybe where uh, forgers fall, is in the aging of the painting, because it also has to look 450 years old. And he did brilliantly. You see all the cracks along the face, and it must have been painful <laughs> to, uh, to kind of mutilate his, uh, his creation with these, uh, with these cracks and scratches. He also put a little bit of a, of a yellowed varnish to mimic you know, how painting and the varnish ages over time. So how long did it take for this near-perfect Botticelli to be sniffed out as just a trying imitation? So actually, it was only sold once in uh, in 1930 to a British collector who would go on to found the Courtauld Institute of Art, one of the founders. And uh, he had an incredible collection, this uh, former politician called Viscount Lee. And upon his death, he, he gave the whole collection to the Courtauld. And by the time he gave the collection in, in 19... Well, bequeathed the collection in 1947, the work had been severely doubted, let's say. Uh, so it was no longer thought to be um, this you know, amazing Botticelli. But it's really... Um, 
only since 1947, especially as technical examination has progressed, we are able to look at the different pigments that were used, look at what type of wood was used, and he actually drilled holes to mimic worm damage. And an x-ray revealed that actually they're completely straight. So either, you know, it's the most kind of (laughs) the clearest worms in the world, or indeed they're they're fake. So all of these, uh, both close looking and these technical analysis, have confirmed what we already kind of knew by the late 1930s. Art forgeries are as old as art itself and date back to antiquity. Their popularity determined by the art market and how lucrative it might be for the cunning draftsman. In his 1996 book on the topic, art historian Thomas Hoving estimated that various types of forged art comprise up to 40% of the art market, though this is hotly debated. The wishful Botticelli safely stowed away, it's time to move on. Amazing, should we take a look at the, yeah. the second piece of work? I'm very intrigued just by its presentation at the moment. What's funny about this work here is that the forger that made the wonderful fake Botticelli that we saw was actually in the workshop of of the man who made this forgery of a triptych, early Italian triptych. So it has a gold background. And he too was from Siena. And Siena in the early 19th century saw a flock of dealers coming because all of a sudden collectors really wanted to have these wonderful gold background works from medieval uh, Italy and indeed Siena. Um, But of course there was never enough to go around, so then um, artists in Siena started providing them with, uh, with um, with these works. But this work was given in the 1930s to, to the Courtauld, um, and again, for, for study purposes. So we, uh, we knew quite, quite early on. Uh, but again, he, um, the, the forger was very smart because he used a very old piece of wood, and so it does have all the proper wormholes, and then he's, he's just kind of added some, uh, took a hammer and then chopped off pieces of his... Um, of his uh, paint surface to again mimic damage, but it's in it's in very strange places, and it also has the quality of avoiding all of the uh, all of the faces because I think he um, he also you know he does, he didn't want to damage so much his. He thought those were quite good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like, oh, okay, I can, I'm not quite ready. So the figures are incredibly well preserved, but it's everything around them is uh, scratched. But it's a wonderful work, and this forger is especially uh, well-known today, and indeed um, his works are now being uh, highly sought after (laughs) because he wrote a book in the 1930s uh, exposing all of his method. He was a kind of flamboyant character. The myth goes that dealers, especially American dealers who were selling to American wealthy American collectors, paid him not to write the book. And so he kind of took their money for a couple of years, but then decided that he was going to he was going to publish it. And so it's called Memoirs of a Painter of Old Paintings. And in it, he just gives all the recipes to mimic age. He used to either bake some of his paintings or put them in the sun to kind of harden the paint and, and speed up their deterioration. With both paintings safely tucked away, we head up to the drawing room, where drawings cataloguer Rachel Hapanu is ready to show us one of the most intriguing sketches that will be part of the exhibition. For some of the works on display, the investigation is still underway. 
This here came from this particular group of 11 drawings where we had an anonymous phone call back in 1998 from someone who suggested that all of these drawings were actually by Eric Hebern, a 20th century forger. And this group of drawings was by kind of various old master artists. And since that phone call, there's kind of just been a question mark hanging over all of these drawings. And this is one of them. And this is a drawing that when it was bought was thought to be an authentic Michelangelo. Since this phone call now, there's been a lot of controversy, divided opinions, wondering whether it could still be Michelangelo, whether it's a 20th century forgery, or whether it's neither, but could actually just be a follower of Michelangelo, who's just trying to imitate his style, not quite as good as him. So this drawing is in a kind of section of the show where we say there are actually still unresolved questions and we're hoping by sort of presenting these works, we're not only showing people that we don't always have definitive answers to these questions, but that we are still undertaking research and hoping to get more findings from them. So for instance, in this case, this drawing, as you can see, is kind of glued down on this gold mount behind it, but there is actually a drawing hidden on the back of it. So now that we have a sort of fancy for us, but not that fancy, new scanner that can do infrared scans. We were able to draw out that drawing on the back with a little more clarity. But now we can kind of see that there is, it seems like a drawing of a figure twisting and holding up a flag on the back of this drawing, which we couldn't see before. Rachel brings the drawing closer so I can get a better view. Evidence like this throws up even more questions. The investigation for this drawing in particular very much goes on. However, as well as household names, an analysis of copycat art sometimes reveals the names of artists history has long forgotten. Impressive though they are, both curators point out that there are obvious limitations to the artistic value forgeries hold. Karen tells us more. Fakes kind of make you kind of question how you see and what you see. Um, and the fact that you're expecting something to be Michelangelo or Botticelli, does it predispose you? And then all of a sudden when you find out that it's not, does that artwork become automatically less beautiful in your eyes? So it's a very interesting question. And, and I think we also want to showcase that the forgers um, were artists and they were often trained as artists and they were very skillful. However, I'm often asked if we consider these, these works recognized forgeries, works of art. And I, I think that's really going a little bit too far because these artists or these forgers were not inventing, they were imitating, uh, which is much easier. And so I think there's a, there's a notion that that's what we value in authentic works of art, is the, is the invention um, in, in addition to the craftsmanship. So I think that's, that's kind of a nuance that you do need, need to make. Ultimately, whether the work is a verified real deal or simply a botched Botticelli, for curators like Karen and Rachel, there's always room for further questioning. You kind of assume that it's it's either a fake or it's either genuine. Uh, But actually, you know, genuine can have all sorts of things. You know, is it by the artist himself? Is it by his studio? There's all these nuances that make it so much more interesting. It's not yes or no. It's actually... It's, there's many answers, even in terms of the, of the forgery. Were, is it someone who kind of went a little bit too far in restoring something and that all of a sudden we think it's a, it looks like a forgery, but actually that wasn't the intention or was the intention to, yeah, to deceive? So all of these questions is, are, are kind of, yeah, keep it a really interesting field. 
For Monocle in London, I'm Paige Reynolds. Thank you very much, Paige. And Art and Artifice, Fakes from the Collection, runs from June the 17th until October 3rd at London's Courtauld. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Paige Reynolds and, of course, Francesca Gavin. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung and Steph also edits the show. We will all be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. Do, do, do.